So we are working our way through the book of Revelation, and this will be broadcast number 34, which means this will be week number 34, which will take us into the seventh month. And we've been able to cover a lot of ground over the last 34 weeks. I was able to spend, I think, four Sundays in total looking at Revelation 17, which covered uh, ecclesiastical Babylon, and two weeks looking at Revelation 18, which covered economical Babylon. And I made the case then, and I will repeat myself very quickly this morning and say this, that Catholicism is two parts, religious and secular. From the outside, she's very ostentatious, like I say, and yet if you go inside, if you take a closer look at such a setup, you see straight away that you are dealing with a counterfeit, which tragically has deceived many people. So when we get to chapter 19, which we will look at this morning, we can understand the feeling of the Lord. He would go into the temple at least twice throughout his three and a half year ministry and drive out those traders that were found inside the temple that were making shameful merchandise of the backs of working people, trying to give such a shortcut to heaven, shall we say buy a statue, say a prayer, do this or do that. In fact, it was such uh, a rigmarole, such a carry-on that would meet Martin Luther when he went to Rome one year that he was appalled. And that was one of the turning points for Martin Luther's exit out of Catholicism. So keep that in mind as we approach chapter 19 today. And if we may, let's look at verse 1, please. And after these things... I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with a fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. Whore, verse 2. Her fornication, verse 2. For true and righteous are his judgments. Alleluia, verse 1, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. We have a picture here of those up in the third heaven that are rejoicing. They have suffered at the hands of this great whore, tribulation saints, of course, and those from the first century that suffered under pagan Rome. And when Christ returns, papal Rome will be very much calling the shots. And after these things, 19.1, I, John, heard a great voice of much people in heaven, third heaven, saying, Alleluia, spelt with an A. And if you speak to a Muslim who knows a bit of Bible, there's every chance that he will take you to this piece of scripture and say, hey, there you are, you see, Alleluia, A-L-L, the first three letters of Allah, it's the same thing. No, of course it's not. That's what we call a Mickey Mouse exegesis. The correct way to deal with this is to leave it as it is. Alleluia, Hebrew, not Arabic. Alleluia, meaning praise ye Jehovah. Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. He's only your Lord and your God once you get saved. Before you are saved, he's not your Lord and he's not your God. So here you've got a picture of those up in a third heaven, much people, and they are rejoicing and because Alleluia, spelt with an A here, not an H, is a Hebrew word, it has been suggested by many that the language in heaven will be Hebrew. 
and I have no reason to doubt such. Salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he and he alone hath judged the great whore. Chapter 17, chapter 18. Concerning Rome, of course. Which did corrupt the earth with her fornication. And hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. His servants have waited for generations to get vengeance or to get justice i should probably say vengeance is mine saith the lord and now almighty god is pouring out his wrath on such a system he wouldn't need any help back in the book of genesis when he would flood the world and according to some anthropologists there were around 10 million people on the earth back in genesis chapter 6 and he wiped out everyone apart from a family of just eight Everyone got wiped out. Men, women, boys, girls, young, old, animals too. He didn't need any help to deal with such wickedness. He sent Noah to preach to such people. And Noah built his ark for 120 years, which is an indirect way of witnessing to a very hostile and ungodly world. And they made light of Noah building his ark. They made fun of Noah building his ark they retained their sin we know from John chapter 3 how men loved darkness rather than light why because the deeds are evil and therefore the Lord said that's it I will start all over again and of course you know the rest we're here almighty God is dealing with the great whore mystery Babylon chapter 17 concerning ecclesiastical Babylon which means church Compared to economical Babylon, chapter 18, meaning money. That's why the kings of the earth always go to Rome to cozy up to the Pope. He's very wealthy. In fact, I caught a press conference a few days ago by uh, President Trump's press secretary, a guy called Sean Spicer, an Irish Catholic. And he was asked this, will the president go to Rome in May? Because he's due to visit Italy in May And I think he's also going to be visiting some other leaders in Europe around that time. And the question was, is he going to see the Pope whilst he is in Europe, whilst he is in Italy? And Old Spicer said, I certainly hope so. I really hope so. And I thought to myself, what a great shame. This guy can see through fake news. He can see through left-wing attacks. He can see through smears and so on and so forth. But he can't see through the papacy. And he wants so desperately for his boss to go to Rome to meet the Pope, to get a blessing. And someone in the press pack said, every American president since Eisenhower, when he's gone overseas, has gone to see the Pope. And that's probably true. So is Mr. Trump going to visit the Pope? And Spicer wasn't overly sure. He said, as it currently stands, there is no date. There's nothing planned for such a meeting to take place. But normally... Such VIPs from London, Washington and Paris, when they go to Rome, swing round to visit the Pope. Not to have a Bible study, you understand. Not to discuss the plan of salvation. Not to pray for persecution around the world, but to talk money. To talk shop. So you can see once again why the Lord is so angry with such a system. For true and righteous are his judgments. 19.2 For he hath judged a great whore papal Rome, which to corrupt the earth with a fornication, spiritual and also physical, if you believe some of these paedophile stories which continue to leak out of Rome 
and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. That's the ultimate reason why he will take such a decision to destroy her, because she has killed his apostles, first century. She oversaw the death of his son, first century. And she would put many to death during the second, third, fourth century and beyond. Look at verse three, please. And again, they said, Alleluia. And a smoke rose up forever and ever. So he starts with a physical destruction of all of the papal buildings around the world, like Sodom and Gomorrah back in the Old Testament. But of course, inside such buildings are people and their smoke will go up forever and ever, picturing everlasting fire. And that's why we preach about hell. That's why we call on sinners to repent. But they are rejoicing at this. Three, and again they said, third heaven, alleluia, Hebrew, praise our Lord, or praise ye Jehovah, and a smoke rose up forever and ever. So I think it needs to be said again that when the great white throne takes place, we are going to be there, those of us which are saved, as spectators. And we will see the Lord in the person of Jesus Christ judging unsaved people. And they will be judged. They will be forced to go down on their knees. They will be forced to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And off they go into everlasting hell forever. And we will be commending the Lord for making such a decision. It's difficult to comprehend, isn't it? Because we still live here in our mortal bodies. We still have our sin problems, the old nature clashing with the new nature. And sometimes we shy away from our responsibilities but when we get into glory we are changed and that text which speaks about us having the mind of christ found in first corinthians will certainly come into play Nineteen four, and the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped god that sat on a throne saying amen alleluia that's the third time that this picture of praise has taken place this is the third time that alleluia Spelt with an A, not an H, has been uttered from heaven. Hebrew once again. People are rejoicing. I made the case last week from Psalm 139. How David would consider the Lord's enemies his own enemies. And this is the sort of thing that we are reading about this morning. Rejoicing in heaven. 24 elders from verse 4. Picturing redeemed Israel. And picturing the redeemed church. The 12 Sons of Jacob representing Israel and the 12 apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ representing the church and the four beasts cherubim fell down and worshipped God that sat on a throne saying amen alleluia a great picture of service a great picture of reverence if you go to the gospel of John there was an account when Thomas sees the resurrected Christ and he says my Lord and my God he got down on his knees And Christ was quite happy to receive it because Christ, of course, is almighty God. This also shows me very clearly from verses one, two, three and four, going into five and beyond that when we get to glory, we are completely in tune with the Lord. We are not only glorified, but we think like he thinks. We agree with what he agrees with. Whatever he likes to do, that is good enough for us. Five. And a voice came out of the throne saying, praise our God, all ye his servants and ye that fear him, both small and great. Do you fear the Lord? You should do if you're saved. Do you tremble at his word? You should do if you're saved. And here a voice came out of the throne 
still in the third heaven, saying, Praise our God concerning Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, all ye his servants, going back to chapter 1, verse 1, and ye that fear him, both small and great, probably in reference to the angels as well. And I made the case concerning the cherubims and the seraphims, how they have six wings, two to cover their eyes because they are in the presence of deity, two to cover their feet because they are on holy ground. Like when Joshua came into contact with the commander of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, and he said to Joshua, take off your shoes because you're on holy ground. And two, of course, to fly around. So if the angelic world are fearful of Almighty God, shouldn't we be fearful of Almighty God? Both small and great, no matter who you are or where you are, you will be in fear of the Lord. Not just reverential fear, but a literal quaking. Because once again, you are in the presence of deity. Verse 6, please. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as a voice of many waters, and as a voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. Omnipotent meaning all-powerful. Omnipresent meaning everywhere at the same time. And omniscient meaning he is able to read your mind. Every word, thought, and deed. Hence why he will judge you so thoroughly if you die an unsaved person. But it continues. And I, John, heard as it were the voice of a great multitude. And as the voice of many waters. And as the voice of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia. There's that Hebrew word again. For the Lord God, omnipotent reigneth. They are rejoicing in heaven. Because they can see what the Lord can see. Some of these people, like I say, would have suffered under pagan Rome, going back to the first century. And some of these people would have suffered under papal Rome, starting probably with Augustine, right up until the tribulation. At the moment, we have a phony peace. At the moment, and I mean like in the 21st century, all of the churches are very much buddy-buddy. But once a rapture takes place, Revelation chapter 4, there will be a period of time, a phony peace like back in 1939, where nothing really happened before World War II broke out. London was watching very carefully what was going on in occupied Europe. And for a few weeks, a few months, nothing much happened until Germany went into Poland. And within two weeks, the Polish country capitulated. The army just completely folded like a pack of cards. And Churchill went to Paris and he wanted to do a deal with the French government. And he said this, that if you stay in the war, if you put X amount of soldiers up against the Third Reich, Britain and France will become one nation, something unprecedented. And it meant this, in essence, that London and Paris will be one country. They would somehow share their sovereignty. And Churchill was desperate to keep France in the war. But many of the leaders in France were sympathetic to the Third Reich. Also, it must be remembered time after time that most of the Third Reich were Catholic. France was a Catholic country. Poland was a Catholic country. And of course, you know the rest. The Third Reich bulldozed their way into France. Britain tried to stop it at Dunkirk. It was a disaster. And over a quarter of a million British soldiers were able to get back to the UK. And my grandfather was one of them. But around that time, 
it was called the phony war. And I think once a church has been raptured, Revelation chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, John chapter 14, there will be a phony peace. And it could take months, perhaps years. And I made the case last week that Larkin thought it could be maybe 50 years before the tribulation begins. And then it all kicks off. But for me, what I'm really getting this morning from these verses is a picture of those in glory, redeemed, very much part of the triune God, not only commanding the Lord, but congratulating the Lord as he pours his wrath out on such a whore. Like I say, he would have no uh, need for anyone to help him back with Noah. He would have no need for anyone to help him back with Sodom and Gomorrah. He doesn't need you to do anything for him, but he wants you to be a part of himself being the new birth. And he wants you to rule and reign with him because he's a very loving and generous God. 19.7, please. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. You've got two wives in scripture. You've got the wife of Jehovah, which pictures redeemed Israel, which will probably rule on the new earth. And you have the wife of Jesus being the church, which will probably rule in the new Jerusalem for 1000 years. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. Why? For the marriage of the lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. You get saved and it starts off all very well. You are on cloud nine. I know I was when I first got saved and you are just happy to be saved. You are just happy to be a Bible believer and a Bible reader, and you are just happy to know about the Lord and his word. But that's just the beginning. Not only are you saved from all of your past, present, and future sins, not only are you going to rule and reign with him for a thousand years, but you're going to be married to him. And there's no other way really to demonstrate one's love beyond a marriage. You get married, you have a public uh, wedding, friends and family are invited and the vows are exchanged. It's a great way to show the world that you love someone. So the same will take place probably after the rapture of the church and definitely after the judgment seat of the Lord. Look at verse 8, please. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Now, if you consult the commentaries, and I have done over the last few days, it would appear to me, and the overall uh, view has been put forward, that the righteousness of the saints found in verse 7 and 8 doesn't concern imputation. Keep your hand in Revelation 19 and go to 1 John chapter 3. It would appear, and I am of the opinion, that once we are saved, one of the reasons why it's so important that we live the same way is to do with the marriage supper of the Lamb. First John chapter 3, look at verse 1, please. Behold what men of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Number one, we are now called the sons of God. And if that is in reference to us replacing the fallen angels, found in Genesis chapter 6, and others, then I can quite well, agree with that. I can understand that, that we replace the fallen angels. And we are going to be like angels in heaven as well. Look at verse 2, please. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But, but we know that when he shall appear, 
we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath his hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. So it is imperative, it is critical, once you are saved, to live holy. Because not only will you risk the loss of crowns and the potential to rule and reign with him, we go back to Revelation 19. You also risk arriving at this marriage supper almost naked. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. So some people are going to be more prepared than others, shall we say. And some people will, aware, uh, will arrive at this public event and will be almost naked. In fact, go to Matthew 22, please. I want to really drive this point home this morning, if I can, because when we speak about holiness, it is important that we do just that, not to get saved and not in order to stay saved, but in order to be in the right standing when we arrive in eternity Matthew 22, look at verse 1, please. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son, okay, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. He wants people to see such an event as anyone would want concerning their son's wedding. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I prepared my dinner, and my oxen, and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. There's going to be a marriage taking place next month. My only begotten son is getting married. I want the whole world to come out and see it. you get the picture? Five. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants, and entreated them spitefully, and slew them. So not only would they reject it, not only would they make light of it, but they will kill his servants, six, and do so with a spiteful manner, going back to free will and also the Lord's sovereignty. And yes, the two do run side by side. Verse seven, please. And when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. It will start around 70 AD and really... Uh, come to its, its fulfillment at the end of the tribulation. And the king here, of course, is God the Father. Verse 8, Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. He wants people to arrive in large numbers. And again, think of a typical marriage. You want many friends and family there. It's not a private affair. And when people say, well, they are living together, no, that won't work. Living together and being married are not the same thing. Verse 9. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So now he's looking beyond this initial group that have been invited. Verse 10. So those servants went out into the highways, and gathered together all, as many as they found, both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished with guests. It's filling up now. And when the king came in to see the guests... He saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment, picture of imputation. And he saith unto him, Friend, how comest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. You have the audacity to come into my presence. You think you can arrive without a wedding garment, picturing imputation. But in the context, it's the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
13. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Second death, of course. Verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. Go back to Revelation chapter 19. So the picture again is in heaven from Revelation 19. But Christ from Matthew 21, 22, which we just looked at, is speaking to the Jews. And already he's thinking tribulation. He's thinking post the judgment seat. He's thinking pre the millennial kingdom. And he's thinking about the marriage supper of the lamb. It's a big deal for him. And he wants the world and his wife to arrive. John the Baptist would say he was a friend of the bridegroom. Look at verse 9, please, from Revelation 19. And he saith unto me, Right blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. You are blessed if you are invited, and you are even more blessed if you arrive. In the latter part of verse 9. And he saith unto me, these are the true sayings of God. Inspiration. Verse 10. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant, son of thy brethren, that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. And I think this. I think that this is Daniel. I think this is Daniel as an angel. And like I say, we will be like angels in glory. And I think John is seeing Daniel. Because Revelation goes hand in hand with Daniel. Daniel would speak about the second coming. And he was told to seal up the writings. So it's very much like a to be continued kind of thing. John arrives uh, 700 years later. Or just slightly less than that. Let me just correct myself. And he was given the responsibility to continue Daniel's revelation. But what really gives it away to me is this. See thou do it not. Why? I am thy fellow servant i serve jehovah just like you do and of thy brethren meaning i'm a jew like you that's have the testimony of jesus so daniel was saved back in the old testament by believing on a promise we are saved in the new testament by believing on a person the person that gave the promise is the same hence why it all goes back to the lord being grace of course worship god what a great thing to say worship God not the church not your fellow man worship God for the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy Christ would prophesy Christ would predict things that no one else had ever done in all of their life and whatever he would say would come to pass and yet people today continue to reject much of what Christ would preach but when it comes to those which have been invited to attend this spectacular ceremony. I'm thinking of people like John the Baptist. I'm thinking of people perhaps like Job or David or Noah or Abraham and perhaps Adam and perhaps Eve. I'm always intrigued when I look at the Old Testament and I don't see any mention of Eve dying. And I think this, that Eve is probably a type of the church. The church will never die. Christ would say that he that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet should he live. And whosoever believeth in me shall never die. Or whosoever liveth and believeth in me, excuse me, shall never die. You will never die. If you are saved, you will never die. There are people that are going to be raptured. There are people that will never see death. 
Enoch was taken and never died. And as far as I know, he doesn't come back to die because he's a picture of the church. Elijah, of course, was taken and may return as one of the witnesses to die, but he didn't have to die. But here, 19, 9, 19, you've got this great marriage supper of the Lamb. And you've got Christ as the bridegroom and the church as the virgin becoming the bride becoming the wife you've got two brides in scripture the bride of christ being the church and the bride of jehovah being israel the two go side by side and as i understand it this morning new jerusalem will be a gift to the church the thousand year reign of christ will be a honeymoon period if you will and for one thousand years christ and the church will be married and enjoying their honeymoon during that time you'll have uh, the Jews saved, going back to Abraham, like I say, and Isaac and Jacob, on the new earth. And on the new earth will be a millennial temple in the new Jerusalem. As far as I can ascertain, there is no literal temple, because Almighty God is the temple. But on the new earth, there will be a temple, a millennial temple, which will be very busy. Animals being sacrificed, so on and so forth. But ten again, and I fell at his feet to worship him. It's kind of natural. Cornelius would do the same with Peter. And Peter says to Cornelius, that's okay, my boy. I am Pope Peter. Get down and worship me. No, that's not what he says. He says, don't worship me. Get up. I'm just a man like you are. And when people came into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, they worshipped him. And he took it. He never once, never once said, get up. Don't worship me. I'm just an ordinary man like you are. No. He took the worship because he is almighty God. And I, John, fell at his feet to worship him. I think it's Daniel. And he said unto me, see that I do it not. I am thy fellow servant. I'm a man just like you, but now I've been glorified. And of thy brethren, children of Israel, that to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. You want to check out Christ to anyone or anything? Check him out by scripture. Check him out by prophecy. Check him out by what he said, like predicting his death, like how he would die, when he would die, and what would happen after he would die for the sins of the world. And then you sit down and look at the Quran or the Hadith or the uh, Hindu literatures or the uh, Sikh scriptures or any other group in the world. Take the time to read such material and then tell me before you tell yourself whether or not the two match up. But of course, Christ is superior to all other groups. Look at verse 11, please. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. You go back to the Old Testament, you read about a man called Joshua. Joshua, Jesus, very similar names. Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, Joshua. It's pretty much the same name. And Joshua would fight. He would fight tooth and nail for the land. Now Moses was a bloody man, but not as bloody as Joshua. David was a bloody man, but not as bloody as Joshua. And a lot of commentators suggest that Joshua is a great type of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we think of Jesus, we don't think of him as this military dictator. We don't think of him as some Patton or Cromwell or Montgomery or rolled into one and yet that's exactly what he is going to be like at the second advent he doth 
judge and make war. When Christ returns, he will come on a horse. And I will look at that probably next week now. And he will trample over 200 million people. A distance of around 200 miles, which is from Manchester to Oxford. People will be just trampled, just stamped upon. And he would do so on a white horse. And if you look at history over the last 100 years, if you look at someone like Eamon uh, Goethe, a wicked reprobate who was one of uh, Himmler's top lieutenants during the Second World War, who oversaw one of the awful death camps in Poland. And he was a Catholic. He was a womanizer. And he had this habit, unfortunately, of getting on a white horse, trotting around this death camp in Poland and just killing people because he felt like it. And one of the witnesses said that if he wore white gloves, he was in a mood to kill. If he wore a particular hat, he was in an awful mood. He wanted to kill people. And he would get up in the morning and he would sit on his villa and he would be looking into the camp. His mistress would be waiting for him in the bedroom and he would take his shirt off. This is absolutely true. And he would get a rifle and he would look through the telescope and he would pick people out and bang, 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 shoot people to death. Women, old, young, children, some five, six, seven, eight. And it was suggested at the end of the war that he personally murdered two, three, four, five dozen people, maybe more. And I thought to myself this when I recently uh, discovered this, what would have happened if such a report had gone back to Berlin, had such a report been relayed back to Himmler, another Catholic, how they would have handled this wicked Catholic reprobate. And I think they would have probably removed him. Because even the SS, as brutal as they were, had rules. And like I say, he would kill people. And there's one account of him uh, killing a child, no more than 10. And as he shoots this 10-year-old in the head, this child has been uh, detained by two Russian, excuse me, by two uh, German soldiers, just ordinary members of the German army. And he could have killed them as well. He was reckless. He was a sadist. He was a Catholic. And a future article that Patrick is going to write will be on Oskar Schindler and the Second World War and Eamon Goethe, this devil-possessed man, this Catholic womanizer, this drinking Catholic womanizer like Oskar Schindler. And I'll say this, when we look at eternity, when we look at people that die, yes, they may be good, they may be brave like Schindler who saved many Jews, and I commend him, of course, but as far as I can tell, as I stand this morning, reading through Revelation 19, he died in unsaved men. The last words that Goethe would say would be, Hail Hitler, not Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner. You've got two men, both Catholic, both womanizers, both alcoholics, dying around the same time, although, to be correct, I think uh, Schinner died in the early 1970s, and Goethe would die 45, 46, uh, due to a Russian noose being put around his neck. But they both died, as far as I can tell, unsaved, which is devastating. On top of that, you've got over a thousand Jews that Schindler would rescue. And again, let's commend him. He was a very brave man. But I'll say this. If those Jews die without Jesus, they're in hell this morning. That's a powerful thing to say, I know. But it's true. You go through your whole life suffering. You spend three, four, five, six years in a German death camp. Could be uh, Sachsenhausen. I've been there. It could be Dachau. I've been there. It could be Auschwitz in Poland. I haven't been there. And they are suffering. They are starving. They are being eaten by bedbugs. There was one account of a woman who was shot in the lake. She fell into this pile of dead bodies. They thought she was dead. She wasn't. 
and she spent several hours waiting for the Germans to go back to their barracks and lights to, you know, for light to go down. It was dark enough, and she waited, and then she ran back to her barracks, and they thought she had died. If that woman dies without Christ, if her kinsfolk die without Christ, they go to hell. And get this, they will go to hell with someone like Schindler, someone like Goethe. How about that? But people don't want to preach that sort of message, do they? People don't want to say that. People don't want to think such a thing. Just because they were Jews doesn't mean they go to heaven automatically. They must be born again. So here you've got this build-up. You've got this final crescendo of Christ's long-awaited return to earth. And it starts with judgment. He's offered salvation over the years. And I think of those poor people in Poland who were driven in uh, boxcars like animals all over Europe to be incinerated, burnt to death. And as they are making their way to their final place of execution, you've got church bells ringing. And I think this, I think during the Second World War, for a lot of people who weren't Jewish, Catholic or Protestant, let's not let the Protestants off either, for them it was business as usual. For them, life continued as normal. They went to work, they went home. They went partying, they went back to work the following day. They got married, they had children, like in the days of Noah. For them, it was no big deal. And yet, at that time, thousands are being rounded up, not just Jews, some Protestants, some Catholic priests as well. Homosexuals were rounded up. Probably Christians and Jehovah's Witnesses were rounded up. And uh, the White Rose, which we've spoken about in the years gone by, were rounded up. Bonifer was rounded up. Many people were rounded up. It wasn't just the Jews. But my point is this. All those people, whether the Third Reich, whether Schindler, whether Jury, if they died without Christ, and I think most probably did, they all go to hell. And they burn forever. You think about that sometime. But here, and I will close, Christ is ready to come back. He's a man of war. He's called Faithful and True. And he's ready to judge and make war. And when that happens, people will be scattering. When that happens, people will be running for the hills. When that happens, they'll be rejoicing in heaven. And people just crumbling on the earth. But he comes back on a white horse. And he's ready to judge. He's ready to put his enemies down. And like I say, he's waited for a long time for such a thing to happen. This is a true picture of victory. Never mind Saddam, who would go around on a white horse. Never mind one of Stalin's top generals, who would go around on a horse. Never mind Goethe, who would go around on a white horse. Never mind these cowboy films, where they go around on a white horse. This is a real thing. 11, and I will close one more time. And I saw heaven opened, third heaven. And behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness... He doth judge and make war. Everything he says, everything that he does is right. And for those of us which are saved, we will be completely in line with what he says and does. We'll be completely of the same mindset. We'll be completely on par with him. There'll be no disagreements because we are one with him. And I will close it there and pick it up next week from Revelation 19.12.